0: Beck um, Becca's making her way to the uh, lectern right now to read to you the scripture for today. You also find it in your bulletin. If you want to open up into the center section, the right-hand side there, you'll see the scripture printed. Now, just a word about this to give it some context, The uh, Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul or at least one of his close followers, disciples, so there's a lot of debate about that. But either way, it's, it's a Pauline letter. It's an attempt to say to the early church, here's who Jesus is and what his life did for us and what it sets us up now to do in his name. And the foundation of chapter 1 lays it out in a way that helps the church know where to launch from and how to be in mission to the world. The message for the early congregation then is the same for the church now. And I invite you to listen to back and read along as it describes the work and function of the person we know as Jesus Christ.
1: He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For him and all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself... Is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his fleshy body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. The word of God for the people of God.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. Join with me in a spirit of prayer. Gracious and loving God, I ask you now to help this foundation of Colossians become an invitation for us in living our life moving forward. Uh, Speak to each one of us as we've gathered here today with our individual needs and desires and hopes and dreams, and speak to us collectively as your family brought together, not simply to be here for each other, but to be here for the world sent forth in your name. We pray this and seek after it by the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome to Spring Forward Sunday. That's why we're just so amazed that you're here and knew the 11 o'clock would be better attended than the 9 o'clock. I don't know if you're here on time or late, but whatever, we're glad you made it. But today has been one of those crazy days, and of course, Spring Forward, things that didn't happen the way I normally like to have them happen on my Sunday routine, so I've got to be honest with you, I'm hungry. <laughs> hey, you guys got any food up in the balcony? What do you got up there? Bacon! Well, would you please bring me some bacon? Thank you for doing that. I don't know if you know this, but the, um, uh, one of our goals this year is to have more of the youth involved in worship more often. And so Annette and the leadership of our youth ministry, um, Michelle and all of them, have decided to go ahead and have breakfast up in the balcony on Sunday mornings. I think it's a cool idea. But of course, they're not going to just do granola bars. So now they're doing waffles and bacon and all kinds of silliness up there, which I think is wonderful. Come on, bring in. thank you. I, oh yes, bring in procession, yes, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, with all the fanfare that it deserves. Thank you ever so kindly, my princesses. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, mm-hmm. well, so good. Thank you. you you're dismissed. Now, here's the thing I noticed. There are a lot of people up there who don't look like youth to me. And you know who you are. Anyway, good bacon. You want some? Yeah. You may have come hungry to church today. I hope you did. What hunger drives you here today? What's the hunger in your life that made you need to be here? Maybe more importantly, what hungers have been driving you this week? Hunger is a wonderful thing, it's a gift from God. We come into this world hungry. Being hungry allows us to survive and then thrive. And while you could say life begins and when we take our first breath, the next step is to take our first bit of nourishment. To start the journey of the rest of our life, needing to be refueled and recharged for living the life that God has given us. We start life hungry, and hungry is a wonderful thing. In the book, Way of Love, Norm Wordswell talks about the fact that hunger is omnipresent. It's in all of our life. Everything we do in one way or another is driven by our hunger. Think about it what gets you to get up off the couch once you get home? Well, you now don't have to change the TV because God gave you a remote. But if that remote could somehow bring you the food and clean up after you, if that remote could uh, bring friendship and relationship and connection, if that remote could bring you all the things you hunger for, you'd never get off the couch. Hunger is what drives us to do that next thing that we do. Hunger is a gift from God, but hunger can also lead us astray. Sometimes we distort our hunger. We don't understand our hunger. And sometimes we try to meet our hunger with all manner of things that leave us starved. Now, you all have heard something similar to this. I was doing some exploration this past week, and they're talking about uh, the Okinawan diet that in the 1940s and 50s in Okinawa, the people who lived there, ate a diet that was predominantly focused on sweet potatoes and rice, with a little bit of fish and a little bit of vegetable mixed in, no red meat, no alcohol and the like. And the proportion of that population that has lived now into their hundreds and lived thriving into their hundreds is disproportionate to the world you and I know. Now, I need to tell you, someone came up to me after the 9 o'clock service and he said to me, Rick, you know, you talked about the Okinawans who ate sweet potatoes and rice as their diet. Fact is, I'm not sure if they lived to 100. It just seemed like they were living 100 years. <laughs> I don't know who the person was who told me that, but you can talk to John Richardson about it. I <laughs> oh, thought was a great line. Because we do make choices that move us away from those kinds of diets that would sustain us with a completely healthy life. We choose instead, of course, to eat other things and to consume other things that, that may shorten our life, quite frankly. Now, I don't stand in front of you, obviously, today as a diet expert. <laughs> God, that was good bacon. <laughs> and coffee. What I know about diet is simply this. I've learned this after vigorous study If I eat healthy food in proportion and exercise, I'm a healthier person. That's the secret. I need to write a book. (laughs) We all know that. We also know that our hungers become hunger for more than being satisfied and sustained. They become for other things. And when we hunger for community and love and joy and peace and happiness and find that journey taking us to places that only mask our hunger. We discover the pain of our life. Lent has always been a time for us to discover our real hungers and to unmask what we're doing that's inappropriately feeding us. It's never been about giving up alcohol or chocolate or pasta for 40 days or six weeks. It's rather about understanding that maybe it's time for us to turn our focus away from the stuff that's been filling us up to the things that can actually nurture us and bring us into a closer relationship with God and give our life vitality and meaning and joy and purpose. To live in the way in which we were created, to allow our hungers to be appropriately identified and met, is to live in the way of love, the way that Christ has taught us to live. It's a reminder for us in this time that we are called to remember that we are loved into being, and not by accident. Whatever the biological or sociological way in which you entered the world was, the fact is. Life, all of life, is not an accident. It is by the intent of God that life happens. And it's by God's desire that our life thrives and our life has meaning and joy is deep and real and love flows to us and from us richly. That's how God intended. That's what Lent is called to remind us of. And it's time for us to refocus our mind on the things that can actually feed us and address our real hungers. How? Well, it begins when we remember that all of us began in a garden. The story of creation, as we find it in Genesis, tells us that everything begins in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, the Garden of lavishness. God wanted all of us to be in a place where what? Where we were in a perfect relationship with him, and all of our hungers were met. There was plenty of food to eat. We were in holy relationship with each other and with God. You and I were created to have that kind of a life. And then we distort our hunger and how we go about filling them. We begin to find other things to satisfy our worries and our fears we try to find other sustenance and securities apart from God and wonder why our life is now more tenuous than ever. The story of the Garden of Eden is not for us simply an ancient spiritual story over which scientists and the religious can argue about the how. Rather, it is a story to remind us that as creatures we are all intended to live in a garden relationship with God and with others. Now, this is not just poetic license. It's a roadmap to our salvation, to our life. In Colossians, we are reminded Jesus was there in the moment of creation, preeminent with God in that moment. As the seas roared and the land came together and the animals walked on the earth and the birds flew and the sun rose and the moon rose And said, Jesus was there. And in the right time, came into the world. To do what? To reconcile us back to the garden. To bring us back into a right relationship. The kind that existed in the Garden of Eden. The kind that exists now in the person of Jesus. Who teaches us how to live and how to love. Teaches us how to find it for ourselves. how to do it with others. The church is called to be a reflection of that garden. When we gather together here on Sunday mornings or Tuesday afternoons or whenever you're together as the church or wherever two or three of us are gathered together, it is our intent to practice the joy of living in the garden. It's a wonderful way to think about what this experience is right now. Someone once asked me a question. They said, Rick, do you know why the church worships on Sunday morning? And I thought, well, I want to hear what his answer is. So I said, no, tell me. He said, the church worships on Sunday morning. Because on Saturday night, a whole lot of people go out and sold their wild oats. And on Sunday morning, they come and pray for a crop failure. That's an interesting way to think about how some people may consider what we're doing here. But what if, what if instead we believe that by being here together, we can be reminded of what is possible, what is right, what we are created to experience and what we're called to be for the world that's quite frankly hungry and starving around us. Here we are reminded that each and every person is not simply, as we tell the kids, someone that God loves, but rather... Each one of us is a part of the creation that is birthed out of God's love that we might share that kind of love with each other. And that love has to be made visible in the way we act, in the way we talk, in the priorities of our life. God's Little Acre is written about in the book, Way of Love. God's Little Acre was a program that began during the Depression in Tennessee and Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina the intent was to try to address rural poverty the idea was pretty basic it would go to rural farmers and and say to them would do me this favor if you'd be willing to in your crop this year would you set aside an acre solely to feed the hungry in your community would you if you're raising livestock raise one extra chicken or lamb or pig or cow or whatever and set it aside to go to feed the hungry of the poor. And so the communities did that. Farmers did that. And it was an effective way to begin to address hunger in those rural areas. It was an effective way to allow the broader community to have a tangible connection to the poor, to the hungry in their midst. It was a tangible way of understanding in the rural area when we are able to get close to the stuff that we need to eat, that could be a way of creating community. And it worked so well. And then 1946 came. We won the war, and we became prosperous. And the most bizarre thing happened. In the rural countryside where food is grown, poverty increased because people left the farm and moved towards the marketplace. And in the places of the most fertile land in our country, poverty increased, hunger increased, because we forgot who we are supposed to be. We lost a connection with everyone in our community. And in 2009... God's little acre was reinitiated. Now, on a much smaller level, it's just in Fairfield, North Carolina right now. And uh, it's just an acre, literally. And annually, it now produces about nine tons of food for the hungry in that greater area. But what it does is more than that. In planting the garden, it's a community garden to which all are invited to come and share, to do the work. Yes, to learn how to garden. Isn't it interesting that where real poverty is at a high level, we have to remind people how to plant seeds and grow them for food. That's how far we've removed ourselves from the order of creation. But that's what happens in this garden. And of course, as the book illustrates, people bring all kinds of hunger to the garden, not only for physical food, but also for power and for recognition. You know how it is, whenever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there saying, can't you guys figure this out? Because sometimes when two or three are there, we have 14 different ideas of how to do the one thing. And you have to learn how to get along, you learn how to compromise, you learn how to make decisions, learn how to share respect instead of dismissal. And so this garden begins meeting all kinds of hungers beyond just food. The church is called to be that place. Our reflection of the garden where today we come in acknowledging our hunger. Did you come here today hungry to be here? Did you come here today hungry for a taste of God? Did you come here today hungry that someone else who is in love with Jesus would be in love with you too? would nurture you, befriend you, care about you, listen to you, sing with you, pray with you, be the community with you. It's what the church has always been intended to be. It's what we want to be. It's what we strive to be. What are you hungry for today? Because so often in this world, we can satisfy our hunger with such junk we no longer remember when we're hungry. We just keep consuming junk in our relationships, in our thoughts, in the way we speak, in the things we buy, in the things we do to get what we buy. And the things we fight over that don't ultimately matter at all. Some people might actually believe they're not hungry anymore. They believe they've gotten to that stage of life where they're satisfied. There's nothing really more to hunger after. And that may be the saddest thing of all to say. Is it possible that our life stops the minute we quit hungering for God? Is it possible that we find the best of our life when in a dynamic relationship with God, we remain hungry every day to learn more about God, to experience God, to witness Christ, to walk with Christ, to be Christ's representative in the world. You know, there's a quote he has in the book that along with hunger, he says this, the worst human fate imaginable Would be boredom. Because boredom means a person no longer finds the world to be a lovely enough or compelling enough place to warrant our attention. Are you bored in your life? Ask a 14 year old home on summer vacation how's it going? What's one possible response you might hear? You're bored. bored. Because we've been eating on stuff that no longer lets us find delight in the world. Ask a 40-year-old who's chasing after their professional goal, driving themselves into the ground, and they will tell you how busy they are, how tired they are, but underneath it, too many times I've discovered they're just bored. Are you retired? You've done all that? I've put in my time. I no longer have that much to offer. Really? Each and every one of us is a child given into this garden to experience a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't care if you're 14 or 40 or retired or what your age is. Today, there's something that God needs you to do. There's someone God needs you to reach out to, to befriend. There's a prayer that only you can pray. And there's a love that only you can know and share. Bored? Not in God's garden. And maybe Lent is a time to reignite the love you have for God, for Christ, and for living in the garden of Christ. Is church boring? Probably somewhere in the sermon you thought that. but not in the living of church. If we walk through this hour and don't have some reason to have a dynamic connection or relationship to someone else in this room, what in the world have we come for? This is the garden. And I mean literally. The likelihood is there's someone seated within arm's length of you or a pew or two of you who needs your nurturing love and grace. A word, maybe even a hug, but certainly your presence. And their life hangs in the balance. And if you think I'm just trying to be dramatic, look around. Right now there are 14 families in the city of Pontiac that are coming together once a a week. There are 14 families. Many of them did not know each other before they started gathering around a table. When they gather around the table, there's simple food there and there's conversation. That's really about all it is. The purpose of gathering around that table is so that over 16 weeks, these families who are self declared living in poverty will come together and talk about what it is to live in poverty no, we're not going to tell them about what it is to live in poverty. How arrogant would that be? Instead, they talk about what it is to live in poverty. They resource each other. They talk about where can you find the inexpensive clothes, the food, the medicine, what shelters are open or what food banks are open. Or where? And they resource each other to know how to live more faithfully and more completely for their families. At the end of the 16 weeks, they'll have 16 weeks of conversation and $400 if they complete the 16 weeks. $400. Would you do anything for 16 weeks for $400? But what you would do is spend time sharing your life with each other so at the end of the 16 weeks, you are part of a community that will not let you live in poverty alone. And you will come together with the hope that in the richness of God's garden in the name of Jesus Christ's love, you will find a way to get ahead, to move your family forward, to move from poverty into the abundance of God's grace, whatever that could be as God leads you to do it. You know why those 14 people get together? Because you make it possible. It's your program. You're the ones that are making it happen. It's called getting ahead. And why would we go offer it to 14 families in Pontiac? We'll never know. Why wouldn't you? We live in a garden. And if you live in a garden and you've got grace and mercy and love and joy and the power of God in your midst... Why wouldn't you look across the fence and see a neighbor who's hungry and say, hey, you want some? Bored? Not till every mouth is fed. Not till every heart knows the love of Christ. Not till every tomorrow is filled with the hope that only comes from Christ who reconciles us back to God. That's the garden we live in. And this is the moment right now for us to be gardeners with each other and to talk honestly about what we're hungry for and what we've been eating on that has been killing us. And so I leave you with this. This week, between you and God, what are you hungry for? And is it really feeding you or is it killing you? And who around you needs to be invited into a garden where they can be fed? That's your question and that's your work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.